for those of you who have not read my book, you should know that most of what I've just said is not in the book. It's not in the book. The book is not a work of history. It's not a Wikipedia entry. It's a novel. So appropriately, at its center are individuals. It takes an extraordinary writer to create a 30-year history of a count trapped inside a hotel in Moscow and make every page feel propulsive. But that's exactly the plot of Amor Tolls' A Gentleman in Moscow. And that's exactly the kind of writer Tolls is. Amor Tolls writes books worth considering and reconsidering. Books that delight in every possible setting at every possible hour. Whether he is exploring Russian history or a 1950s road trip, Tolls creates rich and nuanced worlds filled with both daily joys and fascinating characters. I'm Rebecca Hoogs, the Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. You're listening to Sal On Air, a collection of talks from the world's best writers from 35 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. In A Gentleman in Moscow, the subject of his 2019 lecture, the ever-charming Count Rostov says, quote, By their very nature, human beings are so capricious, so complex, so delightfully contradictory, that they deserve not only our consideration but our reconsideration and our unwavering determination to withhold our opinion until we have engaged with them in every possible setting at every possible hour, end quote. It's exactly this consideration that pushes out the walls of the Metropole Hotel to hold an expansive world where readers would have happily stayed for 60 years. A gentleman in Moscow spent over a year on the New York Times bestseller list and was named a best book of 2016 by NPR, the Chicago Tribune, the Washington Post, and the San Francisco Chronicle. Tolls is also the author of the New York Times bestseller Rules of Civility, which was named a best book of 2011 by the Wall Street Journal, and 2021's The Lincoln Highway, which has sold more than a million copies so far. This is Sal on Air. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I want to thank Weiwei for sharing her poetry with us tonight. And I want to, yes, thank you. Another round for that, really. Thank you very much. I want to thank Seattle Arts and Lectures for having me. And most of all, I want to thank all of you for coming out to join uh, me this evening. Um, as I think most of you know, my novel, A Gentleman in Moscow, has a rather unusual premise in that it opens at a Bolshevik tribunal in the Kremlin in 1922, where a 30-year-old aristocrat is being interviewed. And in the course of this brief interview, it becomes clear that the Count wrote a poem as a young man that was very popular with the revolutionary generation. So he has some friends in the upper ranks of the party, as it were but it also becomes clear that he's an unrepentant aristocrat. So, as something of a compromise, the tribunal decides that the Count can go back to the hotel where he's been staying, and if he ever comes out of the hotel again, he will be shot. And with the snap of a gavel, he's marched out of the Kremlin across Red Square and through the doors of the historic Metropole Hotel, and that's where he spends the next 32 years, and that's where I ask you to spend 32 years with him. Now, where did this odd premise come from? 
I began writing fiction as a kid. I wrote it in high school. I wrote it in college. I wrote it in graduate school. But when I was 25 and I moved to New York City, I joined a friend of mine who had started an investment firm. And 20 years later, we were still working side by side. Now, ultimately, in my capacity as a spokesperson for the firm, I would spend a week in any given year in a hotel in Chicago, a week in a hotel in Los Angeles, a week in a hotel in London. And one year, when I was arriving at my hotel in Geneva for the eighth year in a row, as I was coming into the hotel, I recognized some of the people hanging out in the lobby from the year before. <laughs> It was as if they had never left. And I thought, you know, this is a nice hotel, but can you imagine if you actually had to live in it? And in the elevator on the way upstairs, I thought, ah, that's actually kind of an interesting idea for a book. A guy gets trapped in a hotel for a long period of time. So in my hotel room, I took out the hotel stationery and I began sketching the outline for this tale. Now, right off the bat, I knew that if I was going to take my protagonist and trap him in a hotel for 30 years, he shouldn't be there by preference. <laughs> he should be there by force. And that made me think of Russia for some reason. <laughs> made this little imaginative leap there. But once I thought of Russia, I knew that I wanted to set the story in the Metropole Hotel. Now, I had never spent the night in the Metropole at that point, but I had visited it briefly when I was in Moscow in 1998. Now, the hotel is quite famous, architecturally speaking. For instance, the uh, ground floor dining room has a giant hand-painted glass ceiling. So I had gone to the hotel to marvel, marvel at the architecture. So I knew something of the hotel. But my decision to set my story there really comes down to two factors. And the first factor, quite naturally, is uh, location. Oh yeah, here we go. So here you have a, a map of central Moscow. Um, and I, if it, I hope you can see it in the back. Um, if you can't, it's your own fault for getting your tickets so late. <laughs> so there's that. But in the center of the map, you will see a little green triangle. And that is the Kremlin, the thousand-year-old stone-walled fortress in which the czars lived and from which they ruled over Russia until Peter the Great moved the capital of Russia from Moscow to St. Petersburg. Now, just to the right of that triangle is a narrow white space. That's Red Square, which is just a great tiled plaza at the end, uh, opposite ends of which are two ancient cathedrals. Now, if you go out the top of Red Square and take a right, In about a block and a half, you end up in what is shown in the inset map here in the lower right-hand corner, Theater Square, which is a grand plaza at the center of which are fountains and plantings, and around the circumference of which are five majestic 19th century buildings, each of which has been very important in the history and the life of the city of Moscow. Now, in the lower right-hand corner, You have a building that before the revolution was known as the Palace of the Nobles. It was basically the private club of the nobility. It's where they would gather to celebrate uh, national holidays, weddings, and that sort of thing. After the revolution, it became known as the Palace of the Unions. It's where Lenin's body was first held in state so the citizens of Moscow could come pay their respects uh, before his embalmed body was moved over to Red Square and put on permanent display. Uh, the Palace of the Unions is also where the famous show trials 
were held in the late 1930s. At the top of the plaza, you have the Bolshoi, which is where the ballet performed then and where it still performs today. In the upper right-hand corner, you have what was the most expensive department store in Moscow before the revolution and after the revolution, too. Next, you have the Mali Theater, which is one of the two most important dramatic stages in Russia. And finally, in the lower right-hand corner, you have the Metropole itself. So as I said, even from a brief visit, I knew that uh, the Metropole was situated very centrally in terms of both the geography of Moscow and the history of the city. But my primary interest in the Metropole was, of course, the building itself. Here it is. Everything you see in that picture is the Metropole Hotel. This picture dates from not long after it opened, probably around 1910. Uh, the hotel's about the size of a city block with hundreds of rooms. Now, when it opened in 1905, it was the best hotel in Moscow. It was the best hotel in Russia. Uh, made with the finest materials, uh, it, had, it had and has imported Italian marble in the lobby, uh, Venetian crystal and chandeliers throughout the building, French uh, furniture in the bedrooms. It was the first hotel in Russia to have hotels in the bedrooms. It was the first hotel in Russia to have hot water in the bedrooms. So from its opening, it was seen as the very height of elegance throughout Russia. Now, having said that the hotel was very unique in Russia at the time, it was far from unique in the West. Because I want you to remember that the period roughly between, say, 1890 and 1910, this is the golden age of the Grand Hotel. This is when large-scale, luxurious hotels are opening up in every major city in Europe, every major city in the United States, as well as along the Mediterranean and the Florida coasts. This is when the Waldorf Astoria gets going in New York City. This is when the Palace opens in San Francisco. This is when the Breakers opens in Palm Beach. So this was the era of the Grand Hotels. And what the Grand Hotels tended to have in common is that they were all the size of a city block. They all had hundreds of rooms. But in addition, they would have had a card room, a billiard room, a great palm court where tea would be served in the afternoon, multiple restaurants. And on the ground floor, there were shops that went around the circumference of the building, which you could enter from the street or from the lobby. Um, so this is what the Grand Hotels looked like. Now, of course, the Grand Hotels were designed to meet and serve uh, the great new wealth that had come up out of the 19th century, uh, to serve the Vanderbilts and their ilk, who were going on their grand European tours and who had very high expectations for the quality of establishment that they were going to stay in. But to some degree, the Grand Hotels were designed to do something that hotels had really not been designed to do before. And that was to become an extension of their city. And what I mean by that, the best way I can put this for you, is that if you had gone to the Metropole Hotel in the decade after it opened on a Saturday night, more than half the people that you saw passing through the lobby would have been Muscovites. It would have been the local Russians, not travelers. The local Russians on their way to meet friends in the coffee house, to dine in the restaurant, which was the best in the city, or to dance to one of the multiple orchestras that was playing in the building. 
So from its opening, the Metropole was very much a part of the social fabric of the city of Moscow, visited on a weekly basis by the nobility, by the intelligentsia, and by the upper middle class, the haute bourgeoisie. Now, having said that the Metropole shared many of these aspects with the other grand hotels of Europe, a distinguishing characteristic of the Metropole is that 12 years after it opened, it found itself in the middle of a proletarian revolution. And it was very much in the middle of things. In the course of 1917, as revolutionary activity was heating up, a lot of it was situated in St. Petersburg, because that's where the Tsar was, holed up in the Winter Palace, the Hermitage. But there was a lot of revolutionary activity in Moscow as well, and eventually, the soldiers who were permanently stationed at the Kremlin ended up taking over part of the Metropole Hotel, having determined that given its scale and its location, it was the perfect bastion from which to defend the weakest flank of the Kremlin. So they put snipers in the corner windows here that you see just to the right, left of center, excuse me, uh, from second floor all the way to the top, looking out over Theater Square, the snipers. Now, in response to this, quite naturally, the revolutionaries ended up building a barricade across the middle of Theater Square, and they would stand behind the barricades with their weapons in their hands and their backs to the Bolshoi, and you had what was basically a Mexican standoff. Now, in October 1917, the revolutionary activity in St. Petersburg finally boils over. The revolutionaries storm the Winter Palace, seizing the Tsar and his family, and suddenly the revolutionaries are in control of the capital. News of this reaches Moscow 24 hours later, and the Bolsheviks who are in Theater Square decide enough is enough, and they bombard the Metropole Hotel with everything they've got, breaking every single window in the hotel. But they successfully drive the snipers out of the hotel, they drive them back through the Kremlin, taking control of the Kremlin, and now the revolutionaries are in control of Moscow as well. We actually have a very interesting first-hand account of these events from an American. John Reed, the great American journalist whom Warren Beatty immortalized in the movie Reds, was a classic Greenwich Village lefty. He loved revolutionary activity wherever he could find it. And when he sensed that there might be a revolution in Russia. He left New York, he sailed across the Atlantic, and he arrived in St. Petersburg just in time to follow the soldiers into the Winter Palace. Now, when he came out again, he decided, I gotta go to Moscow and see what's happening. So he boards an overnight train filled with soldiers, and he arrives in Moscow uh, just after the battle for Theater Square. And the first thing he does is he goes to the Metropole Hotel because it's the only hotel he knows by reputation. And when he arrives, he goes up to the desk and he asks them whether or not they have a room available for him for the night. And in this great 19th century grand hotel unflappable fashion, the desk captain replied to John Reed, we do have a room, provided that the gentleman doesn't mind a little fresh air. <laughs> of course, of course. Now, at this point, the revolutionaries are in control of Moscow and St. Petersburg. But this does not represent the end of hostilities in Russia. This represents the beginning of a five-year civil war 
Eight foreign countries send troops into Russia with their own agendas. The whites, the soldiers who are loyal to the czar, are continuing to roam the countryside in small battalions, picking fights with the Red Army in the hopes of turning back the tide of history. The revolutionaries are not a single force. They are multiple factions who are kind of working in concert, but also elbowing each other for control of the situation. Now, pretty early on, the faction that is in control of Moscow and St. Petersburg is uh, the Bolshevik faction. And the Bolsheviks are led by, of course, the father of the revolution and the first leader of the new government, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. There he is in this iconic photograph. I like to think of this, I like to think of this as Lenin's Leonardo DiCaprio Caprio in the Titanic pose, you know, <laughs> sort of leaning out over the bow of his podium there. Um, this, this, is a, uh, this picture, which is taken in 1920, it's in the middle of the Civil War, this is in Theater Square. Right behind Lenin is the Mali Theater that I showed you a few minutes ago. And if you look at the right of this picture, there's a sliver of a building, and that's the Metropole Hotel. Because the Theater Square is exactly where you would go in Russia uh, if you, had a, you wanted to gather a large crowd and you had something very important to say. Now, what Lenin is doing here is he is speaking to factory workers, and he is trying to convince them to leave their jobs in Moscow to join the Red Army, and to go out to the Polish border, the border of Poland. Um, the great fear the Bolsheviks had at this point in 1920 was that a Western power would take advantage of the chaos of the Civil War and launch a full-scale invasion into Russia. So they were constantly recruiting new soldiers for the Red Army to go out and protect the Western frontier. Now, this picture is very famous for another reason. And that is, uh, while Lenin was the father of the revolution and the first leader of the new government, his number two in the revolution and in the new government was, of course, his old friend and comrade, Leon Trotsky. And as usual, Trotsky is standing right here at Lenin's side as Lenin gives this historic speech. Now, you needn't bother looking for him. No, hold on. There he is. He's the guy in the middle, leaning against the podium with the captain's hat and the mustache. That's Trotsky. Now, you can see from the, so the, the other photograph, these are taken just minutes apart. He's in one, he's not in the other. This is not because Trotsky has gone to the washroom or something. Uh, what's happened here is that while Trotsky was, uh, as a revolutionary, was one of the first revolutionaries to lead in the new government, he was also the first revolutionary to fall out of favor. Pretty quickly, he was pushed out of the Politburo, then he was kicked out of the Communist Party, then he was sent into exile, and eventually he was assassinated in Mexico City by Russian agents. And when that happened, they went back and they airbrushed him out of all the photographs <laughs> so that Lenin would not have to share his historic moments with his old friend and comrade who had fallen from grace. Now, by 1922, the Bolsheviks are in control of the whole show. They have successfully sealed the border, they have decimated the White Army, and they have consolidated control of the various revolutionary factions, either through coercion 
or force. And they're in charge of the whole ship. And the first thing they do is they move the capital of Russia from St. Petersburg back to Moscow. Now, this poses a significant problem for the Bolsheviks because Moscow at the time did not have the infrastructure to support a modern government. You couldn't use the Kremlin for that purpose at the time because it was just an old stone building that had not been used as a seat of government for hundreds of years. So what they did is they seized the three best hotels in the city, the National, the Savoy, and the Metropole. The Metropole is renamed the second house of the Soviets. They go in and they push aside all the luxuries, they kick out all the guests, and the first thing they do is they put many of the leaders of the new government in the suites on the second floor. Uh, you want to keep in mind that the leaders of the Russian Revolution, for the most part, were not Muscovites, and in fact, many of them weren't even Russian. So they literally needed places to stay. So they're given the grand suites on the second floor. But all the other rooms in the hotel are emptied. The bedrooms are being used for all manner of governmental offices that you can imagine. The ballroom is emptied, and that's being used for speeches and votes. The fine dining room is emptied, and it's filled with cots so they can keep a battalion, standing battalion, in the building at all times just in case there's any trouble. The first constitution of the new Russia is written in suite 217 of the Metropole Hotel under lock and key. So basically, at this point, the Metropole is the single biggest bureaucratic building in the new Russia, and that should have represented the end of its life as a grand hotel. But an interesting thing happens over the course of 1922, and that is that the leading Western European powers start to recognize the Bolsheviks as the legitimate government in Russia. Now, it takes the United States more than a decade to come around to this point of view, but the European nations come to it very quickly. And you want to keep in mind that the European nations have just spent 100 years getting rid of their own kings and emperors and replacing them with some form of quasi-democratic government. So from their standpoint, the ouster of the Tsar was long overdue. It was time for a change in Russia. And as far as they could tell, the Bolsheviks represented the will of the people. So they recognized the Bolsheviks as the legitimate government in Russia, and that meant that by the end of 1922, ambassadors start showing up in the city of Moscow from across Europe. Trade representatives come from the biggest uh, uh, countries in Europe. Corporate executives come from Europe and the United States, from the biggest corporations eager to establish ties and start doing business with the new regime. And pretty quickly, the Bolsheviks realize that if they let these sophisticated visitors from the West come to Moscow and they put them up in crummy proletarian hotels, that they ran the risk that these visitors would go back to Paris and London and New York with the news that the revolution is failing. So, the Bolsheviks kicked all the party guys out of the Metropole Hotel. And they began restoring the hotel to its pre-war glamour. Suddenly, there's a uniformed doorman back out in front. There are bellhops in the lobby. There's champagne and caviar in the dining room. And they reassemble the old orchestra, which starts playing American jazz on a nightly basis. 
This is the main dining room on the ground floor of the hotel. It's what the count refers to as the piazza. Uh, given the angle in this photograph, you're looking at about two-thirds of the room, let's say, 60% of the room. Um, and you can see that even though this is a contemporary photograph, well, first of all, that's the, that's the, uh, on the top is the hand-painted glass ceiling that I mentioned at the beginning of my remarks. Um, and, and above that are two more glass ceilings which are unpainted so that natural light can go all the way from the roof of the building down to the ground floor. Um, you can see that the room is very much like Lyons described it in the early 30s. There are the giant lights that he talks about. You can see the pool in the middle of the room where the chef would catch fish to cook. And in the back, you see the little uh, bandstand where the orchestra would play. The only difference between this photograph and a, a, a period photograph is that in the 20s and 30s, there would have been three times as many tables. And everybody packed in there elbow to elbow, having a grand old time. Now, what I love in particular about the Lion's Passage is that it could easily have come from a memoir of someone in F. Scott Fitzgerald's circle describing what was going on at the Plaza Hotel in New York in the 20s. It is crazy that this is what was going on inside the Metropole Hotel across the street from the Kremlin and around the corner from the headquarters of the secret police at the height of the Stalinist era. And this, of course, is what really attracted me to the building, this crazy paradox. Now, for those of you who have not read my book, you should know that most of what I've just said is not in the book. It's not in the book. The book is not a work of history. It's not a Wikipedia entry. It's a novel. So appropriately, at its center are individuals. Most importantly, the figure of the Count, who at the age of 30 has just lost his family, he's lost uh, his possessions, he's in a way more profoundly watching as everything that he cares about in Russian life is being systematically uprooted by the new regime. This is how he begins his internment in the hotel. And so over the course of his 30 years there, he must establish new relationships. He must find new causes for happiness, however small. And ultimately, he must find a new sense of purpose. And this is really what the book is about. Now having said that, we are going to shift to the Q&A part of the evening. And if you did not submit any questions, then I am going to ask them myself. Thank you. Now, where do we have? Thank, thank you. Where do we have Ruth? There we go. There she comes. Oh, we're going to move this, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh, that was fascinating. Thank okay. you so much. You're welcome. So as we get settled, um, if you all have questions for um, Amor Tolls, please uh, put them on your question cards and pass them up, or I have many of them here. And I'd love to start with, um, you've just shared some amazing research with us, and research is a huge part of both of your books, and I'd love to know a little bit about what's your research process like? So, I, I hate to, my first answer to contradict the question, questioner, but I don't do a lot of research on applied basis for my books. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I should say that. I, I, I don't pick a topic, research it, and write a book. Mm -hmm. What I do instead is I, I pick a topic that is grounded in something that I have had a long-standing interest in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Rules of Civility, uh, my first novel is set in 1938 New York, 
and I have a long-standing interest in the 20s and 30s since I was a kid. Similarly, with, with Russia, I have a long-standing interest in Russian literature and culture, and that's the foundation that I use to invent A Gentleman in Moscow. Now, in both cases, at the end of writing the first draft, I would go and do some applied research to sharpen some details um, and, and check some facts and that sort of thing. But, but this kind of opens the question of, of why do I do it that way? Why do I postpone any applied research? And, um, so I'm going to take a second to answer this in some detail um, because I, it's an important part of my process. I, I am very personally uh, suspicious of the influence of applied research on my work and on the work of others too to some degree. Um, and, and the way I like to think of it is that and the reason why is you could, let's say we take, uh, we ask a French writer to do a novel about America in the early 60s. And uh, as a part of this project, we give that, that French writer, you know, a, a big stack of Life magazines and, you know, television footage and a David Halberstam, you know, history of the 60s or whatever. And we give all this material. And the person then writes the book. And now, the risk that we run when we do it that way is that in the middle of the book, there's a moment where, let's say, uh, this young girl, she's coming downstairs, she's going into the kitchen as her mother makes dinner. And uh, what ends up happening is that the sentence says, uh, you know, the girl, she entered the kitchen uh, as her mom, her mother was taking, as, as, as Love, Love Me Do played on the radio, and as her mother was taking the bird's eye frozen peas out of the frigidaire. You know, that's, you know, clunk, clunk, clunk. The, the sharply, we get it, 1964, you know, the Beatles, bird's eye food, Frigidaire. You know, when in fact, if you were that young girl, let's say she's seven, eight, when she came in the kitchen, I think what would stand out for her is something like uh, the extraordinary fact that when you take bird's eye frozen peas from the freezer and you remove the peas, from that thin cardboard sleeve, they come out in the shape of a brick. That's an amazing thing when you think about it, right? And so, you, you know, your mother would break that brick over the pot of boiling water, and you'd watch that, and the peas would kind of bounce along the counter, and eventually every kid is going to try a frozen pea, you know? And this is the kind of impression that the child is going to have when she walks into the room, right? Not the brand name stuff. Now, but we complicate this a little bit further, which is to say, Let's say that on this day, uh, the mother has discovered that her husband is cheating on her. You know, she, she's cleaning, they're putting away his jacket and has found a note in the coat or whatever, you know. And she's feeling, uh, she's feeling fragile, angry, old, scared. You know, all these feelings that would come to the, to come to, you know, from that discovery. Or, or... Let's say that today is the first time she cheated on her husband, you know? It happened at the car wash, you know? She, you know, she and Bob were in the back seat as the thing went through the thing, you know? So, uh, so she's feeling, you know, she's feeling, she's feeling excited. She's feeling young, a little scared, you know? Exhilarated by this experience. Now, either way, whichever of these two things happen, The key thing for you to understand is that the young girl doesn't know that this is what's happened um, at this point in her life. She's walking to the room, she's seeing the scene, 
And depending on which of these two things happens in the book later when we discover that this is that day that this happened, depending on which of those two things happened, you would have to write every single sentence in that scene differently to kind of give the feeling for this, you know? And I think that, so I, I walk through this because I feel like it points to two of, of what are the essential aspects of serious narrative writing from my standpoint, which is that one of the goals is to capture that kind of fresh, innocent impression of the child walking into the room, but on the other hand is to write it in such a way that you have all of the, the valences and subtleties of, of very complex uh, contradictory human adult emotions which are in the room under the surface of, that are sort of in the language somehow even though they're not explicit to us yet as readers such that when we find out a hundred pages later that this is the day that happened you could go back and read those pages and say oh of course that's what that was it was there all the time you know right under the surface and I think, as I say, I think these are central goals in serious narrative writing, and I think that applied research can get in the way of achieving those sort of little elements of magic. And that's what I think about that. Thank you. Both um, the, the Count and Gentleman in Moscow and Rules of Civility are deeply concerned with codes of conduct and how to navigate the world. And I'd love to hear you talk about why and why that's interesting to you. Yeah, I mean, you're, it's, a, it's a totally fair observation. It's a good one. I, um, you know, why? I, I guess because civility does play a role in Rules of Civility, obviously it does, and, and uh, posture... Uh, tiers of society, um, uh, outward behavior versus internal uh, uh, thought processes, uh, the, the relationship between behavior and integrity, you know, these things definitely interest me in general. And so, uh, you know, I, and I think they play a very different role in The Gentleman in Moscow and Rules of Civility, clearly. Um, but it's, it's fun to return to them, because I think those layers of, of social living are so... Uh, so there's such a fascinating aspect of human life and that we, we all encounter and we're a part of it and we feel it in, in the way we behave under different circumstances, the choices we make as we move from one tier to another, the sacrifices and advantages that we get, whether we make that move voluntarily or under force or by chance. And so I do love that. Now, I should say that um, I should, should point out that I'm, I'm, working on, I'm, uh, I'm working towards the end of finishing the first draft of my third novel, I, I hope to finish that draft. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So I, I hope to finish that draft by the end of January, which means that maybe, I, hopefully it'll come out in 2021. Um, but that book is about three 18-year-old boys on their way from Nebraska to New York City. The whole thing only takes place over 10 days, and there is no civility in it at all. <laughs> so... We're going to move on from that topic for now. <laughs> I'd love to hear that. It's great to know what the next project is. I'd love to hear some about your writing process. Yeah, the process. So I am, um, I am an outliner, uh, I should say, um, So at least so far. And when, when I, you know, as I said, I've been writing fiction since I was a kid. So I have you know, 10 books that I would like to write at this point. You know, I'm going to run out of time before I run out of books I'd like to write. But, but and over time, I kind of accumulate a better and better sense of what that story would be. But when I'm really moving, saying, okay, I'm going to do the, the guy in the hotel story, then I will spend about a year and a half designing the book. And so that means for me 
Before I write chapter one, I have an outline that's maybe 40, 50 pages long, which describes every chapter, what happens in the chapter, all the characters and their backgrounds, all the settings in which the scenes take place, some of the dialogues, some of the themes, some of the poetry, some of the imagery, kind of laid out in this very detailed document. Um, and, you know, and then when that's ready, then I go to work. And, um, and I try to, try to give myself some sort of a time limit to get the first draft done. Um, uh, you know, and I kind of learned that. I, I, I spent seven years writing a novel in my mid-30s, which I didn't like. And so I set that aside. And one of the things I learned from that is, is that I, I, the, the, the parts that I wrote in the first year were some of the best parts. So when I set out to write a, a new novel after that, I said, I'm going you know, to really try to design it carefully, because I hadn't outlined that first failed book. I'm going to design the next one carefully, give myself a year to write the first draft. And Rules of Civility was the product of that, sort of, that uh, commitment on my, on my path. And, and that's why, actually, uh, you know, that book opens on New Year's Eve, because I designed that book in 2005, and I began writing it on New Year's Day 2006. Mm -hmm. And that book ends on New Year's Eve that year, because I finished that book on New Year's Eve of 2006. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, here's a crazy, kind of crazy Tolzian fact. That book has 26 chapters. I designed it to have 26 chapters because there are 52 weeks in the year, and I wanted to write a chapter for a week, edit it for a week, and then move on, you know? So that would be 26 chapters, 52 weeks. Um, so, <laughs> thank you. But so so when, I, when I set out to do Gentleman Moscow, it was very similar. Uh, you know, I designed it for over a year, uh, and then I, it, it took me a year and a half to write the first draft of A Gentleman. Um, the book is 50% longer than Rules of Civility, um, for the same price, I might add. <laughs> so you, you have that going for you. But, um, but, but then in, in both cases, once the first draft was done, I revised the book from beginning to end about three times. And that's ultimately what you read. It's uh, the structure that you're talking about is the perfect segue to a fascinating question from an audience member, which I did not catch. Um, the person asked, can you tell us why you chose to have every chapter begin with a word starting with the letter A? Yeah, okay. So, so that's true. For the, a Gentleman Moscow, every word in every chapter title, so even if it's a four-word you know, phrase, every word in every chapter title is an A word. Um, and I, you know, the answer to that question is, I don't really know. <laughs> so it was one of those things, like early on, like, you know, kind of, well, you know, chapter three, I'm like, oh, you know, yeah, look at that. You know, I'm going to use an architecture and I'm going to use, you know, whatever, another A word. I'm like, maybe they should all be A words, you know. And then you're like, then you have this sort of moment of like, you know, and it really feels this way. It's the two voices, you know, that's a great idea. That's crazy, you know. <laughs> And so you've had both of those ideas, and then you're like, no, I'm going with it, you know? And so, but, you know, but, so I don't really know why, but, but you know, the great thing about the modern era, or a, and a, a great thing about the modern era, is that, <laughs> is that, uh, is that, uh, is that, you know, if you go to amortolls.com and you go to the contact page, the, you, when you submit a comment, it goes right to me, you know? So I get emails every day from readers, and it's really, you know, it's, it's great, it's very satisfying, it's great fun. Um, and so people send me their opinions about this topic, you know? <laughs> Which is very helpful, since I don't know. So, so, so you know, somebody, somebody sent me, you know, things saying, you know, I think that you used A-words in all the chapters because uh, your name is Amor and the Count's name is Alexander. And I'm like, that's great. Yeah, great. 
You know? And then, and then somebody wrote and said, um, you know, I think I think you wrote use uh, all the chapters of A words because um, A is the first letter of the alphabet, and it's a book about new beginnings. And I was like, bingo! <laughs> yes, it's totally what I had in mind. So, so yeah. So anyway, so if you got a good idea, you know, send it in. You know, I'll add it to the list. But yeah, that's all I got left. So perfect. I'm curious because you do um, spend such careful time structuring and have such a detailed outline. Where does surprise come into the writing process for you? Yeah, um, so where does the surprise come in? Uh, it, it's it's there all the time. So uh, you know, I, I, I do, you know, and I, I make it sound like it's so technical. You know, I must sound like you know, like a robot writing books or whatever. You know, <laughs> but 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 the, the 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 subtle irony here is that. Um, the reason I like to outline and the reason I structure my books with some care is, is, ironically, because that frees me up while I'm writing the chapters to shift my, my mind entirely to uh, the more mystical aspect of creative writing, which is to, you know, uh, trust in my instincts, to try to get my, my subconscious to start, you know, uh, uh, taking over the imagery, the, the word choice, the cadence of the sentences, the, uh, the sequence of, of events. You know? so, so I use that structure so that I don't have to worry about that part. And then I can really kind of go into sort of the, you know, the quasi-mystical state of, of, of creative writing and, and hope that the subconscious is going to populate the book with, with some artistic depth. And, and, um, and that's all surprise-based. Um, you know, you're, you, you, you're caught off guard. And uh, uh, certainly I have characters who do things occasionally that in the heat of this writing a scene, a character will do something. Uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, that is always a fun thing. But, but one of the, the big ones, one of the most satisfying ones, uh, aspects of this is um, when I go across the country and I speak about the book or when someone sends an email and they say, uh, you know, there, there's a passage in the book that really hit home with me. You know, uh, it really was wise or, or insightful, and, you know, and I wrote it down, and, you know, or I, I sent it to my daughter in a letter, or I read it out loud to my wife or my husband, or, you know, or I put it in my journal, whatever. When that happens, which is always a lovely thing when someone says something like that, when that happens, 99% of the time, the passage that they're talking about, this little bit of wisdom or insight, um, there, I would never have had that insight in the course of my daily life. I wouldn't occur to me. I, I wouldn't say it to my kids. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't live by that rule on my own and discover it in my own experience. What's happened is that I have invented this character, or what, you know, one particular character, who is different than you know, me. The person has a different background than me, whether it's the Katie or the Count. They have a different background, they have a different personality than me, different psychological traits. And then I'm going to take that person and I'm going to put them in a situation that I've never been in. And when that happens, and as I'm writing, uh, occasionally what happens is while that person that's different from me is in that situation I've never been in, sometimes they kind of look around and they say, you know, the thing about it is da 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 and usually when that happens, it comes really fast, right off the keyboard. And you're like, period. And I'm like, well done, count. <laughs> you are right, you know. Yes. 
that is so wise, you know? <laughs> so, so there's, you know, that, that's, the, you know, that's always a pleasant, you know, kind of surprise too, is, is that, so it's not only the poetry and the imagery and the metaphors that can kind of come up through the creative process, that it's, it's kind of the human insight aspects too that come, you know, presumably from somewhere deep in your subconscious, but yes, they are presented to me through the craft of the writing itself. Speaking of well-done count, an audience member would like to know, did you model the count after yourself in any way or anyone you know? (laughs) My wife wishes I'd modeled the count after myself. (laughs) It was not not modeled after me. Um, You know, no, so so the count is an invention. Count is an invention. Um, Obviously, I'm I'm drawing... uh, You can think of, you know, there's, there's a way of thinking about the count is you have this personality, and then you have kind of his upbringing, which is a different thing. And obviously, from the upbringing standpoint, I am drawing on uh, a very broadly documented history of aristocratic Europe uh, in the 19th century. Even though he's living in the 20th century, he's born in the 19th century, he's inherited a 19th century sensibility, particularly in the early part of the novel, and, 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 you know, that I am drawing from not simply Tolstoy, you know, uh, but from similar figures in English literature, in French literature, in Italian literature, because the amazing thing about the aristocratic classes of the 18th and 19th centuries was that that small group tended to have more in common with their peers in other countries than they had with their own countrymen. You know, that's just the reality of that, of that particular arrows 1%. And so, uh, so, so I have a lot of, 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 uh, of, inf- of, of culture that I can draw on for the invention of that. The personality is obviously a very different thing. And then you're trying to drill down into, okay, here's a guy coming up through that aristocratic environment, but what is he like? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of the interesting things about that, as I say, I think about this a lot in advance. I know the Count very well by the time I'm writing, or Katie by the time I'm writing the book, but um, in, in rules. Um, but inevitably, even though I've got a pretty good grasp of it, I don't really have the tone of voice perfect until I'm really into chapter one and going through the writing itself. And you know, for my writing, tone of voice is a big factor. And it shapes the, the language that's going to be used, some of the, the, the sentiments, the, the sort of the angle that that person has relative to events and relative to other people. This is all tone of voice driven. And, and so as I say, I know a lot. I even have an inkling about tone of voice, but I'm not going to really know for sure what that tone of voice is until I'm writing chapter one. And sometimes, in both cases, it's a sentence where it really opens up for me. And I can tell you exactly what it is in Gentleman in Moscow is in chapter one, uh, the Count has been sentenced to house arrest, and he's marched into the hotel by two, uh, uh, with two members of the Red Guard, and they're approaching the uh, elevator and the staircase, and the Count stops, and he turns to the two uh, uh, soldiers, and he says, gentlemen, the lift or the stairs? And the two you know, soldiers look at each other, unsure of what to do, and the Count thinks to himself, how can you be expected to succeed on the field of battle if you can't make a decision between the lift or the stairs? <laughs> you know, and so he makes the decision on their behalf. He says, all right, the stairs, gentlemen. And he took the stairs two steps at a time as had been his habit since the academy. And, you know, that sort of three sentences, again, that's one of those things that went wop, 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 wop. That came really fast. 
And again, you kind of hit the period, and I kind of sit back, and I'm like, that's the guy. That's him. You know, there's so much in those three sentences that is informative to me about his personality and about what the tone of the book is going to be, at least from a starting point. You know, the fact that he'd be the guy who stops to ask his, you know, captors, which way should we go, you know? And the, and the whole sort of highfalutin thing of, you know, uh, how can you be expected to succeed in the field of battle, you know, if you can't make a choice, you know, that kind of self-important, uh, exaggerated tone. But then the idea of taking the steps two at a time has been his habit since the academy. You know, that's very count. So, so, so it's like kind of you finish that, and I'm like, okay, yeah, this becomes like a, a north star for me, which is like, okay, as I move forward, if I'm already like, I just want to kind of remind myself who I'm dealing with, I can kind of go back to that little moment, and I'm like, yeah, that's the guy. And, and of course, now over the course of 400 plus pages in 30 years, he's going to evolve. He's going to change a great deal. Circumstances are going to change. But, but you start with that. And then the circumstances occur, and you're taking that's the person who's evolving and being shaped by events. Um, so, you know, that's kind of where the count comes from. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that he was not modeled on you now, but the audience would like to know, what is your favorite wine-food combination that the count enjoys? <laughs> okay, so, so uh, I should say off the bat that um, I... The, the only thing I really know about wine is that I like to drink it. That's all I know. So I'm not, I'm not really a very sophisticated wine observer, um, but I do know a lot of, much more about food, and all the food in the book is food that I cook for my family. Um, and uh, whether it's, you know, bouillabaisse or the salt and bokeh, um, but probably my favorite food uh, certainly the bouillabaisse scene in the book is, is probably the th- one, one of the ones I'm proudest of. I, I love that, that gathering and what happens in that scene. And, um, and, you know, that's a surprise thing, you know, where, you know, the, the, the juggling that occurs in that scene, which I love, was kind of came out of the writing of that scene. Um, but, but, but setting that aside, I, 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 the, the food that I particularly love and, and the role it plays in the book is the Latvian stew. And uh, relatively early in the book, it's, it's Christmas time, um, and the count is in the, in the piazza, and he's having dinner, and he's sitting next to a young, you know, uh, couple who are, he senses they're on their first date, and, you know, they're student age, you know, college age, and, and he's watching, and the men, they, they bring the menus, and he's very concerned that the young man is going to blow it, you know, <laughs> that, that, you know, he's like, oh, you know, he, first of all, he, he could order something really expensive to try to impress the girl, but, you know, it could come off as pretentious and off-putting, and he can't afford it, or to save money, he could buy something cheap and kind of, you know, look shabby on this first date. And so then the kid, he, he, after, you know, kind of looking around, you know, the scylla and cribdis of the menu, he says, I'm going to have the Latvian stew. And the count is like, well done, lad. <laughs> well, perfect choice, you know, and the girl gets it, and the count says, I'm going to have the Latvian stew too. Well, I make that for my family. That's a dish I make for my family. And, and in fact, if you Google Amor Toll's Latvian stew, <laughs> it will take you to a, I, my, the recipe I use and an essay that I've written about the stew, and, and it's delicious, and you should make it. <laughs> yeah, it, is. Oh, it's true. It's true. <laughs> There will be a lot of cooking coming soon. Um, I know that Gentleman in Moscow is going to make its way to the screen, and I'd love to hear you talk about what has that process been like for you. Yeah. Um, 
So it's true that Gentleman Moscow is being made into uh, a television series, you know, a, a long-form television, which is, I, I, there was interest in making a feature film, and I, I said no to all of them because I thought the two hours would, would, would ruin the book. So, um, so it is being made into a, a long-form television uh, by Apple. It is, is starring Kenneth Branagh. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> and it's starring Kenneth Branagh, which is great. I, you know, I, I like that. Um, and they are, they are writing the first episodes right now and with the hope that they're going to start shooting next summer. And it's very fraught. You know, it's a very painful process. <laughs> you're not really involved. You're just involved enough to feel like they're going to ruin it. You know? <laughs> so, 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 you know, you try not to pay too much attention. But no, obviously, it's a, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a fortunate thing if they do make it. Um, and, and, and I'm excited to see what happens. Um, but we, you know, we've got some time before it comes out. Any guesstimate for the audience members who I, want to know? I have no idea when. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. Fair enough. When did you know that you wanted to be a writer, and how did your 20 years in finance affect your writing? Okay. Uh, I began writing... I, I'm not, I think there are a lot of writers, not all writers, but a lot of writers who were like this. I, I began writing at the same time I began reading. And I remember it very vividly because uh, it was in first grade and uh, our teacher was Mrs. Gom. And it's one of those things like, I, I think of Mrs. Gom as being like 65, but she was probably 35. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But, but at any rate, so but maybe she was 50. Anyway, so Mrs. Gom, uh, she was friends with uh, a, a well-known juvenile poet in the Northeast named David McCord, meaning he wrote poetry for young people. And, but he was definitely in his 60s and had written many books. And so because she knew him, he came to the class to read poetry to us. And yes, they sold some books at the end of class, or maybe he gave them out. I don't remember that part. <clears throat> but what I do remember is being like, that is so cool. You know, that is amazing. And you know, going home with the books and reading them with great excitement and the very first night, I began writing poems that were just like his, you know, trying to write a poem like his, which were very often, you know, celebrations of simple things, you know, root beer or whatever, you know. And so, uh, so, I, so I wrote a bunch of poems like that, and that began it, you know, and it never stopped. So then it was kind of like, from that point forward, it was like, read, write, read, write, read, write, read, write. And so... You know, every person I read or got interested in, I have explored, you know, I've stolen a little from, I've copied, I've, I've tried to do what they were doing as a part of a practice of mastering craft. But, but the desire to write was simultaneous with reading. What did I, my 20 years in the investment business, what did that do for my writing? Not much. <laughs> uh, so, so, I mean, the, 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 there, there's a plus and minus to it. The, the, the minus is that because I, uh, of my job, which I loved, um, it was a great uh, job, uh, a great career, because of that, I, I, I did not publish a book until I was in my mid-40s. So I'm way behind what I would like to be in terms of the number of books that I've written at this stage in my life. Um, but the positive side was that, uh, and it's a, it's a meaningful positive, is that because I was sitting down in my 40s to write Rules of Civility, and I had a career, and, you know, we had a home, my kids were in school, you know, my, my friends had, didn't even know I was a writer, 
you know, because by the time I got to New York and I wasn't doing it so visibly, most of my social relations and my colleagues just had no idea that I'd ever written a word of fiction at all. And so, uh, and you know, because I had a good job, my dad was happy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, you know, my wife was happy, I should say. <laughs> so what it meant was when I sat down to write Rules of Civility, I wrote it for no one. You know, there was, I did not have to write it for anybody. I didn't have to make money doing it. I did not, uh, I didn't ha it wasn't a part of my identity to my peers. I didn't have to compete with my other writers, my generation, because they didn't know who I was. <laughs> you know, so, so it really was a, a, a personal project. And, and, and that's, you know, a, a great gift in any creative art, is to be in a position to make something for yourself. Now, I'll add that, um, because again, that's a window on my way I think about my, my process from a craft standpoint. When I, I mentioned earlier that I do a draft and then I revise from beginning to end three times. And the way I think about that is that when I'm writing that first draft, I really write that for myself for sure. Like, I, which means that I will put anything in it, something that is, I'm obsessed with, if I, I will go on at length, you know, uh, in a part, just like I'm doing right now, <laughs> you know, go on, you know, I, I, I will, I will, you know, I, I will pump in, you know, my obsessions, I will, you know, overdo artistic elements, you know, I will follow digressions, you know, whatever. I just do anything that I, my instincts tell me to do, I will do in the first draft. I write it for myself. And then when I shift to the revision process, I try to turn the wheel on that. And I try to revise now for the reader, whoever that is. And the way I think of it then is, well, you know, if someone is going to buy a book of mine, you know, they're going to make an investment of money, but way more importantly, of time and of themselves. And there's a covenant there between me and that reader. And I owe it to the reader to go through that first draft and work it over which is to reduce the parts that are redundant, to get rid of all the cliches, to, to uh, make it lean, to ha make sure that it has pace when it needs to have pace, that, to have it be surprising and insightful and, and moving and all those things that you're trying to, to achieve um, and with an economy, meaning that, you know, to achieve that goal with as few words as possible, no extraneous elements. You know, that, and so, so that editing process I do kind of in a, in a sense for the mystical unnamed reader out there. Um, and, I, and I feel like that balance works very well for me. And, and you know, and in retrospect, you know, I don't know if people, many of you are from my generation. The, kind of the funny thing is, when I went to college in the 80s, uh, you know, the, the assumption you know, was that great art should you know, never be written with the audience in mind, ever. You know, painters, music, whatever. The audience should never be considered at all. And, uh, you know, and, and we all believe that, 100%, you know, and uh, me and my peers. And, um, and in retrospect, that's the craziest idea. <laughs> and it certainly wasn't true for the previous 500 years. You know, Dickens had great interest in, in what his audience thought about his work. Leonardo da Vinci had great interest in his audience. Mozart had great interest in his art. You know, so did Jane Austen. All, you know... The, they were all creating art with an audience in mind. And, and so, you know, I, so yes, I think that, it, that it, is, it is important to protect that initial... Uh, you, you don't want to think of the audience too soon for all the reasons you can imagine, right? They're gonna make, it's gonna, you're going to make bad decisions. You're not going to follow your artistic impulses because you're worried about what 
they're going to like or what they might, you know, what might be successful or what, what somebody else is writing or whatever. And so you don't want any of that. So you're in the first draft. Stick with your first yourself, but then you, you, you do that second piece, which is think about the audience as you clean up your own work. Thank you. It's interesting that you began talking about reading and the role in reading in your work. And there's a question um, that we've gotten several different versions of about your favorite Russian writers and yeah. also what you're reading and loving now. Yeah, so, so I, read, I read with three friends. So in this, we began, we've been reading together for uh, 16 years. And we, we began, we sort of formed around the time I was turning 40. And um, what, what ended up happening is I, I was, I just read a couple of contemporary novels. And I, I shouldn't say this because I'm a contemporary novelist. But I just read a bunch of contemporary novels and I was, I was, I was underwhelmed by the experience personally at the time. And, uh, and I was frustrated by it. And so, and I, I decided, you know, for, for, to take a break in essence, to shift gears a little bit. I wanted to go back and start reading books uh, that I knew would enrich me. And, you know, the way I think about this is that, that um, I think, you know, history, time, whatever you want to call it, time is, is very bad, very bad at capturing all that is great in art. You know, many great painters, you know, musicians, novelists, their work is lost. And, and, you know, great, you know, with great sorrow. It's never been discovered or it's been forgotten or what have you, despite the fact that it's great. So history is very bad at capturing all that is great in art. But history is very good at weeding out all that is mediocre. So, so while it is true that if you're looking at what has survived from 80 years ago in the novel, let's say, it is not going to be a perfect representation of all that was great 80 years ago, but what has survived is going to be very good. So with that in mind, you know, I was like, you know, I, I, I'm going to set aside, you know, the contemporary fiction for a while, and I'm going to go and try to focus on reading works of fiction that I know that they would merit being read at the age of 20, and then 40, and then 60, and then 80, that you could return to them. They were so good, so rich, you could read them each of these times, You'd be entertained each time, and you'd learn something different as you return to that book over the course of you know, every 20 years. And, and I was saying this to a friend of mine at a cocktail party, and she was like, I want to do this. You know, how are you going to do it? I want to be a part of it. You know, what's the plan? So we got two other people. It's two men and two women. We're all married, but our spouses are not involved. And we began reading a book a month. And, and so, you know, as I say, 16 years ago. And we do projects. So, uh, you know, the first thing we did is we read the seven volumes of Remembrance of Things Past, which took us about a year. Um, but we've done like, um, you know, we've read, uh, we read one year we did Emerson, Whitman, Dickinson, and Thoreau as a lead up to reading four novels by Mark Twain and then six novels by William Faulkner. And we kind of thought of it as this sort of the, the evolution of the American voice was kind of the idea there. Um, we, uh, one of my a favorite projects is we did, um, in one year or part of a year, we read Madame Bovary by Flaubert, uh, Portrait of a Lady by Henry James, uh, Anna Karenina by Tolstoy, 
and Middlemarch by George Eliot, and we called it 19th Century Wives Under Pressure. <laughs> that was, you know, but it was great. That's a great project, and it's fascinating because those four, those four masterworks, written kind of in essence four countries, all written within roughly a 50-year time frame. And so you're kind of from Russia to, you know, to England to, to uh, France, you're seeing the evolution across the West of the middle class, of technology, of the change in the church, of the role of women and wives and, you know, uh, of small towns and, and, and versus, you know, the big cities. All of it's being playing out there in all four of those books. And so that was really satisfying. But so to go back to your question, so, so yes, the first time I read a Russian novel I was 18 or 17, it was Dostoevsky's uh, Crime and Punishment with my English teacher in high school. And so we as a team said, oh, you know, we should go back and revisit the Russians. So we took a year and we read uh, more than 10 Russian novels. You know, we, we read certainly War and Peace and Anna Karenina, but we read uh, four or five novels by Dostoevsky, we read Gogol, we read Chekhov. It was, it was an amazing experience. Partly, by the way, from my standpoint, we, I think we've been given a gift, which is that these incredible uh, Pavir and Volkonsky, the husband and wife translating team, have been translating the Russian canon steadily for 30 years, 25 years, and you know, there's now 20 of their translations out there, and I think they're amazing. So we read only Pavir and Volkonsky in this case, uh, you know, going through things. And, and one of the, the best parts of this was um, we, were re we decided, okay, Dostoevsky, we're going to start with Crime and Punishment. And uh, now we all had read it at 18 or 19, all four of us. And we all had the exact same memory, which was that, um, you know, it's Dostoevsky, so it's kind of a little heavy, very psychological, it's a little dark, you know, brooding and slow. Because uh, as we all know, you know, right in the beginning, you know, the guy decides he's going to kill his neighbor just to prove that he can. You know, that's the setup there. I'm not giving anything away. Um, and, and so, you know, so, you know that... that that's, that's on the back of the book, right? So, but, it, but so we kind of all, this was our memory. This is our memory. So we all go, we, all, we go to read it. And we, the way we do it is we, we meet in a restaurant. We go at seven and we usually close the place. You know, a different restaurant every time. And, and, and so we're there from seven to midnight. And, and you, I, you could see the electricity in, as people were arriving, the four of us. Every, you know, you, everyone was so excited. They could not wait to talk about crime and punishment. And you sit down, we get right into it after we order the drinks, but you get right into it. And, and, and what, what, you know, what, we, none of us remembered, we didn't understand the book, we, you know, we, 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 and we didn't remember it. It is, first of all, it's a page turn. It's a total, you know, procedural page turn, right? Because he commits this crime, and there's a detective who's kind of on his trail. And there's other villains kind of on the periphery of, of Raskolnikov's experience. The detective, the detective, um, Famously, is uh, who uh, Peter Falk based Columbo on. I'm not kidding. That's true. And as you're reading the book, you can see it. Because, I mean, there's literally a point where this sort of shabby detective, he leaves Raskolnikov in his, in his garret room, and then he, like, comes back and says, oh, one more thing. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so, you know, he says that. Uh, there's social comedy in it. There's great social comedy in it. Uh, and then here's this is fascinating. So in the back third of the book, you know, in the back third of the book, there is one of the most chilling characters any of us had ever read in fiction. He's, it's a total sociopath. He's done terrible things in his life, 
you know, including to children, that he admits quite ca- casually. And he's kind of, he's pursuing Raskolnikov's sister. And he's, and he's very, he's, you can't take your eyes off this character and what he does and what he says. And as we talked about it, none of us remembered this figure at all. And it took us half the dinner to figure out that we didn't remember him because we'd never finished the book. (laughs) So, so, you know, as kids, (laughs) so, so yeah, you should go back and read the books, you know? The books you were assigned in high, high school and college, it doesn't count. You haven't read them yet. Go back and read them, it's very satisfying. So yeah, so that's, that's the reading that we do. Sounds like an amazing book club. Well, we have time for two more questions. Um, And this one question came from a lot of people in a lot of different forms. Um, In your imagination, did the Count ever see his daughter again? Oh, wait, is there spoiler questions? Wait. (laughs) We're going to avoid the questions about the end of the book, I think. If that's all right. Totally, yep. So I've re- read you So you can you get say, a different one. You can I add a different, different one. Awesome. Um, I've read you say that writing is alchemy. How so? Wait, I'm sorry? Writing is alchemy. Who said that? I've, I've read you say oh, that. Oh, I said that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so true, isn't it? <laughs> so, so uh, I don't know. So, so yeah, I mean, and obviously we've kind of covered some of this tonight, but, but you know, the, the notion of, 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 of turning raw material into gold is this, you know, obsession of the alchemists and... You know, and they would, you know, go through all these crazy experiments in order to achieve that. And I, and I do think that there is, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I used the word mystical earlier, right? Because I really don't know what other word to use it. I, I guess in the, you know, contemporary parlance, we talk, people talk about flow. You know, that you're in a, a deeply creative situation. When you're in the flow, it, it, it comes naturally and, uh, and your subconscious and, and instincts start to present ideas that you could not sort of generate under pressure, as it were, and, and, um, and, and this is, I think, is a part of the alchemy of, of the writing process. Now, there's a, there's a bigger alchemy, uh, which, which is, is what, the, what a book, what a work of serious narrative can do with readers, you know, and, and you know, if, we, if you look at fine, serious narrative that is written very well, it's extremely well done, one of the, I think of it as almost like a machine for meaning. Right, is you take this, this story, and people can turn, as we talked about earlier, you can return to it you know, over 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, keep returning to it, reading it, and now people are engaged by it, interested by it, or debating it, you know, find new things in it, um, you know, despite the passage of time and, and all these things. And, and the reason that's true of a certain class of books is because they are written in such a way that they have this almost sort of a loosely organized, it's a little bit anarchic, anarchic or whatever you say, but you know, it's loosely organized but not completely organized assembly of, of images, poetry, you know, personalities, settings, you know, plot events, uh, I, communication of ideas, all of this in there, uh, in all kind of in a, in a fabric of, of images and colors and words and poetic references that, that such that it can generate an infinite number of observations. I mean, this crazy sort of concept. And, and that's obviously an amazing alchemy. When you think of a book as a physical object, it is concrete in shape with a set number of pages and a fixed number of words, and yet 
can generate centuries of entertainment, insight, and an infinite number of ideas, that's pretty magic. That's magical. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you have one more question? Or do you want, do you want to go to the other thing? Well, I, I think that's a magical spot for us to, okay, to ship. end, but well, I know you, you wanted know, to share stories. What I said was, was, I was I, I, in, the end, in closing, I wanted to, to tell uh, you know, two, a, quick, a pair of stories quickly. Because I, you know, I, I hope it comes across. You know, for me, writing is, is an imaginative process. It's an it's a, it, a John Moscow is an invention. Rules of civility is an invention. But inevitably, there's aspects of your personal life that will percolate up, you know, into the narrative. And so I wanted to sort of share with you kind of two quick personal or, you know, reasonably quick, <laughs> you know, <laughs> cancel your reservations, you know. <laughs> so, so, you know, quick personal stories and, and how they affected the book. But, you know, so one is, is when, I was, when I was eight years old, you know, my, my family uh, had, has always gone to Martha's Vineyard Island off the coast of Massachusetts for the summer. My grandmother did, my mother did, you know, my, my, my siblings and I did. And when I was eight years old, I put a note in a bottle and threw it in the ocean. And the note said, you know, you know who, whoever finds this, you know, I hope this has, message has made it to China. You know, threw it in the ocean. So it's, it's mid-August. So at the end of the summer, uh, we go home, and you have that thing where there's a big stack of mail, you know, and my mother's going through the mail, and I can remember it vividly, and she, suddenly there's this envelope, it's this big, and she says, you know, there's a, there's a letter for Amor from the New York Times. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, give me that, it's my mail. So turns out, turns out that the, the managing editor of the New York Times is the guy who found the bottle. So he wrote me a letter and he said, you know, dear Mr. Tolls, you know, I'm sorry to inform you that your bottle did not make it to China. <laughs> so, now, his name is Harrison Salisbury, and Harrison Salisbury was a great uh, foreign correspondent for the New York Times. Uh, he was the New York Times, he was a war correspondent in the Second World War. He was the, uh, the New York Times correspondent in Hanoi. Uh, he came back to America, he ended up becoming the, uh, invented the op-ed page in the New York Times, which was the first op-ed page in America, and was on the managing editorial staff. And, so we corresponded from the time I was eight until the time I was 18, and then I, I went to New York and met him, and it was, you know, very exciting. And, uh, and at that point, I was actually an editor on my school paper. And, and so when I was writing A Gentleman in Moscow, I said, all right, I'm going to go live in the Metropole Hotel for a week, but I'm going to write the first draft, and then I'm going to go, for all the reasons we've talked about. So, I go, but when I was going, I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find any first-hand accounts about life in the hotel that I can find by famous people and bring it with me. And so when I revise, I'm going to read these various accounts of life in the hotel. And so, you know, I, because there were not very many good hotels in Russia, if you find a famous person who went to Russia in the 20s, 30s, 40s, or 50s, 50% 50 of the time they talk about the metropole somewhere. So I had first-hand accounts from John Steinbeck. Uh, from Lillian Hellman, the great American playwright, from John Reed, as I mentioned earlier, from E.E. E. Cummings, the poet, mm -hmm. and all the journalists. And as I was kind of gathering these first-hand accounts, in one of the journalist things, you know, it's, I noticed that he says, yeah, you know, oh, was, we were at the bar, and, uh, and Salisbury came in. And I was like, oh my God, I completely forgot. 
Harrison Salisbury was the New York Times Moscow correspondent from the end of the Second World War to the beginning of the Cold War. So I'm like, I bet he wrote about it. So I Google, and sure enough, he did a memoir about his years in Russia. So I buy it you know, through, you know, through the secondary market, and I bring it with me to Russia. And I'm in the hotel, in the suite, and I, you know, and I open his book. And like page one, it says, you know, whatever, 1945, I, I arrive at the airport, and I arrive at uh, the Metropole Hotel, my new residence for the following five years. And I was like, I can't believe it. So the whole book, he's talking about the Metropole Hotel. So I integrated a number of his memories into the book. And eventually, after I'd done that, I was like, he should be in the book. So, for those who know the book, you know, the count at a certain point, Salisbury is mentioned in the 50s in the book as the American journalist Salisbury, and he does a couple of things in the book, but one of them is that the count needs, at one point, a trench coat and a hat as kind of a disguise, and he steals them from Salisbury, you know, which, was, which was a very satisfying to me as a way to repay the kindness that he had shown me as a boy. You know? But so the other thing I was just going to tell you quickly is, is that, that probably the, the single biggest thing in my life that influenced the book, for sure, is the figure of the two young girls. Uh, because, you know, uh, when, uh, you know, the, the, in the book, for those of you who know it, uh, the Count is really his, his experience in the, in the book, in, in the hotel at the beginning, is, is dramatically affected by a nine-year-old girl named Nina, who becomes his first friend. And many years later, is in his 50s, he's asked to keep an eye on a five-year-old girl, and that has a big impact on his life. And it is not a coincidence that when I had the idea for A Gentleman in Moscow, my daughter was five, and when I finished writing the book, she was nine. <laughs> now, my daughter is not really like Nina or Sophia in a, in, a, in a serious way, but my daughter was the first person who really taught me how shrewd a little girl can be. <laughs> you know? they're, you know, they're not to be underestimated at any point, right? So. <laughs> So to give you sort of a feel for that, you give you a little feel for that, and you can see how it affects my invention of Sophia and Nina. Uh, you know, this, this is two years ago, uh, uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, we were out at New Year's Eve, and I said, hey, you know, let's go around the table, and we'll share New Year's resolutions. It'll be fun. You know, my wife, my son, my daughter. And I said, let's go around with we'll New Year's resolutions. And without skipping a beat, my daughter, who was 11 at that time, she says, Dad, don't you think uh, it makes more sense or uh, less sense, don't you think you should be less focused on New Year's resolutions and more focused on your bucket list? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yes, that's what I'm dealing with, you know? <laughs> so, so, you know, I, so I hit her with my cane because, you know, the only appropriate response to that. But so anyway, when my daughter, when my daughter was five and my son was eight, uh, their favorite restaurant in New York was this little place, is this little place uh, called Paul and Jimmy's in our neighborhood, which is an old school family run Italian restaurant. Third generation family run. You know, it's chicken parm, spaghetti and meatballs, veal marsala. You know, my kids loved it. And what, they loved the food. But what they really loved was how they were treated by the staff. And we would go to the restaurant, they would run ahead of me and my wife, and they'd burst into the door. And, uh, you know, the staff would say, oh, Senora Tolls, hey, la principessa, you know, come in. 
And so when we got to the restaurant, you know, the kids would be sitting at our table looking like they own the place, you know? <laughs> so when my son turned nine, we said, hey, Stokely, you know, where do you want to go for your birthday, for dinner? You know, you can go anywhere you want within reason, assuming he'd say Paul and Jimmy's. And he says, in this wistful way, he says, oh, wouldn't it be amazing if we could go to Smith and Walensky's? Now, Smith and Walensky's is this old school steakhouse on the east side of New York. And I'm like, where does an eight-year-old boy learn about steakhouses, you know? <laughs> well, it turns out that the year that my son turned nine was the year that they first put televisions in the back of taxi cabs. And Smith and Walensky's was the first subscriber to put a commercial on the TV. So he had seen it a hundred times, you know? So I was like, Stokely, listen, if you really want to go to Smith and Walensky's, we can go to Smith and Walensky's. And he says, you mean it's in New York? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it's in New York, you know? That's, that's, that's the point, right? So, so on his birthday, we all get dressed up and we go uptown to Smith and Walensky's. Now, for any of you who've never been there, the, the, the waiters at Smith and Walensky's, they, they, they're these big old guys who look like butchers. And in fact, they wear white butchers' aprons. That's what they wear. I mean, they wear pants too, you know. <laughs> but they got these white butchers' aprons on. And so we get in, we go, the, you know, we get dressed up, we go uptown, they, you know, we get taken to a booth and seated, and our waiter comes over, and he says, uh, all right, you know, welcome to Smith and Walensky's, let's get down to business. What are you gonna have tonight to drink, ma'am? A martini, good choice. How about for you, sir? Another martini, well done. And what about for the lad? Coca-Cola, it's on its way. And what about for the little baby? Now, yeah, now the second he says this, he realizes he's made a terrible mistake <laughs> from the expression on my daughter's face. So after a moment of silence, my five-year-old daughter says to this you know, six-foot-tall guy in a butcher's apron, she says, I am not a baby. <laughs> At the other restaurant, they call me La Principessa. <laughs> Thank you very much. What though. a night of delightful Thank stories. You Thank, you Thank you, Marco. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a delight to host Amor Tolls in 2019 and to bring him back to the podcast today. Thank you to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community, and thanks to all of you for listening. This show would not be possible without you. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center with theme music by Daniel Spills. To hear more, subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, rate and review us five stars so that more people can enjoy Sal on Air.